This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Christ in the Old Testament. Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of Judges, chapter 16. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. One day, Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. People of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, At dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, and tore them loose, bat and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Sometime later, he fell in love with the women in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, If anyone ties me up with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, You have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, If anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes of his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, All this time you have been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, If you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with the pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric and tightened it with the pin. Again she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pin and the loom with the fabric. Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines. Come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, 
I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistine seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our god has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their god, saying, Our god has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more, and let me with one blow Get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood. Bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other, Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel 20 years. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, the word that goes forth from your mouth does not return empty, but accomplishes that which you intend. Now plant your word within us and pour out your spirit upon us so that we may bear good fruit for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. When I was a little boy, I had a children's Bible, but it didn't make many concessions to children. It was the very same translation as the adults had, and it had no illustrations. The thing that made it a children's Bible is that certain passages that were deemed unsafe for children were put in smaller print. And of course, me being a very curious little fellow, my eyes were attracted to those stories, the forbidden stories, more than all the others. And as I recall, quite a few of the stories said in the small print The ones that were not safe for children were from this book, the book of Judges that Kenneth read for us, because this is a crazy book, describing the violence and depravity of a very dark time in Israel's history. So dark, in fact, that the rest of the Old Testament doesn't really reference this book very often. You'd rather just forget that those years even happened, because we have almost two centuries of anarchy, murder, terrorism... Outlaws, rape, child sacrifice. It's a disturbing and it's a bloody book. It takes place in the early Iron Age between about 1200 and 1020 BC after Joshua has led the people of Israel over the Jordan River into the promised land. They're there as this loose, very loose tribal confederation. This is before the rise of the monarchy with Saul and David. And in Judges chapter 1, we find that the conquest that seemed so devastating and complete in Joshua is actually very limited and very partial. There are pockets all over the promised land where there are still pagans, there are still idol-worshipping Canaanites all over the place. It turns out that the 12 tribes haven't finished the job. 
They didn't break down the altars. They didn't claim the land as holy for the Lord. And God's going to allow these nations to remain as a thorn in the side of Israel to challenge their faith. And Judges chapter 2 describes the cycle that happens over and over again in this book of Judges. Step one, the people forget God and worship idols. They're always tempted, strangely, by the idols of the Canaanites. Step two, God disciplines them. He sends an enemy nation to plunder and oppress them. Step three, the people repent. They cry out to God. They say they're sorry, and they plead with God to rescue them in some way. Step four, God is moved to pity, and he raises up a judge to save them. Hence the name of this book, the book of Judges. But these are not judges with a wig and a gown sitting behind a bench, pounding a gavel with a big book of laws in front of them. These judges are more like military warlords. They execute justice at the point of the sword. These are guys who lead uprisings and they throw off the shackles of the oppressor. And God raises up these judges to rescue his people And they do, and whatever enemy is evicted, and all is well, for the most part, at least during the lifetime of the judge. But when they die, the whole cycle repeats itself. No less than 12 times, 12 different judges in this book. It's actually worse than a cycle. It's a downward spiral, actually. And throughout these chapters, Israel gets more depraved, more decayed, more idolatrous, more and more like the Canaanites that God had judged. And the character of the nation is reflected in the character of the leaders of the judges. These men become less and less righteous, and we start to realize they're becoming more and more part of the problem themselves. And the refrain that comes up through the book is this. In those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel. The whole book in this time of anarchy is crying out for a strong and a righteous leader who will not only protect the people from their enemies outside, but help, help them follow God and be a holy people who will never be disciplined or punished by God again. Twelve judges, each worse than the last. Until the final judge, the most disappointing of all, Samson. All the more tragic because he's the one that begins with the most promise. An angel actually appears to his barren mother to announce his birth. No other judge has that kind of thing. God says, I'm sending a savior to free Israel from the oppression of the Philistines. And this boy you're going to have is going to be a Nazarite. The Nazarites were described in Numbers chapter 6 as a group of people within Israel who made a temporary vow to God, who dedicated themselves to God for some period of time. And there were three conditions to this vow. No wine, no touching dead bodies, and no cutting your hair until the vow is complete, and then you shave your hair and you're released from the vow. The Nazarites were a group of people who took a vow that was voluntary and it was temporary. Samson is in a class of his own among the Nazarites because he doesn't volunteer. He's called and summoned by God before birth, and his vow is not temporary. It's going to last from the womb until the day of his death. It's a lifelong calling. This little baby has been set aside by God from birth to be holy, to be dedicated to God, to be used for God's saving purposes. 
and he goes wrong pretty much right out of the gate. He sees one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. And he comes home and he says to his mom and dad, get her for me because she is right in my eyes. It's a disturbing echo of the rest of the book where everyone's doing what's right in their eyes. And here's the judge, the leader, the one who's called to be holy from God. And he wants something that's right in his own eyes. In fact, throughout Samson's story, you see his eyes are a major problem. Samson's character can be described in these six words. Samson see, Samson want, Samson take. He's a man governed by his impulses and his immediate desires. And surprisingly, shockingly, for someone who's been set apart to save God's people, again and again, this holy man identifies more with the uncircumcised Philistines than he does with God's own people. He's on his way to visit this woman. He bounds ahead of his parents and he's attacked by a lion on the way. And the spirit of God rushes upon Samson and he tears apart this lion with his bare hands. He's like a Jewish Hercules. He's got this gift of supernatural strength. And days later, going back to Israel, he sees this lion's corpse at the side of the road. And instead of flies buzzing around this rotting body, there are bees who've made a hive inside the corpse and there's honey. The first rule of the Nazarites, don't have contact with the dead. And Samson reaches into this forbidden decaying corpse and pulls out honey to eat. Second rule of the Nazarites, don't drink wine. And right after this, we find Samson having a wedding feast in the vineyard that goes on for days, probably breaking this rule. And in that time, he makes an expensive bet with his new in-laws. And he gives them a riddle to solve. And if you can solve this, you will be handsomely rewarded. He makes this very expensive bet with them. And the riddle is this. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. The Philistines can't solve this riddle. And they're very anxious. They're going to lose out big time on this bet. And they threaten his wife. They say, we're going to kill you and your entire family until you tell us the secret. And his wife, we never are told her name, after three failed attempts, manages to wheedle the secret out of Samson She tells her family, and this starts a whole vendetta that ends up with this woman and her family being burned alive by the Philistines. Whole cycle of violence that happens. We find out that in Samson's story, in his entire life, this judge, this leader, only ever acts in his own interest. Any good that Samson does is incidental. This guy is basically a narcissist. God has given him this incredible gift. He's been clothed with the power of the Spirit like no man before him. He could have done so much good. And he only ever spends his gift on his own personal gratification. We find this holy set-apart man of all places in the Philistine city of Gaza. There are five Philistine cities. Gaza is the southernmost along the Mediterranean coast. It's the one furthest away from Israel. This guy hasn't just taken a wrong turn by accident. He's as deep in pagan territory as it is possible to get. And while he's there, wandering around this town, he sees a prostitute. He sees his eyes, his lifelong problem, get the better of him. He's physically strong. He's morally weak. In fact, Samson's gifting is actually vulnerability. Because Samson's strength 
means that his character is never built by obstacles that resist him and push back at him. Nothing ever says no to him. He can always do what he wants. And there may have been other Israelite men who would have loved to go down to Gaza and hire a prostitute, but they're too weak. They're too afraid. Samson, with his incredible God-given strength, can go wherever he wants. He's completely cocky and insolent, and he uses God's gifts for selfish things. He can act with impunity. Here's this man who was given a gift, not for his own sake, but to glorify God and to save God's oppressed people. And we find him in this story abusing this gift for his own sinful gratification. He's obviously not very careful to hide his identity in the heart of enemy territory. He wanders freely through the town. And of course, he's recognized. And the Philistines decide, we're going to wait all night by the guardhouses, by the gate, until he leaves in the morning, and then we'll nab him. Well, Samson doesn't leave in the morning. He leaves in the middle of the night. And he leaves, in the words of Barry Webb, like a crazed orangutan escaping from the zoo. This is a wild guy, because he goes through the tunnel, past the sleeping soldiers in the gatehouses, And he just picks up these massive gates. He doesn't even unlock or unbar them. He just tears them from their hinges from the wall, carries them uphill on his shoulders, almost 40 miles to Hebron in the heart of Israelite territory. No doubt whistling the entire way. And then dumps them there like a trophy. And Gaza is now completely exposed. There's just a giant gaping hole in the wall. A humiliating reminder that Samson can come and go as he pleases. And no one can stop him. Clearly something needs to be done to neutralize this chaotic threat. And Samson is a force of chaos. All the more hard to resist and fight because he's not fighting strategically. He's doing nothing with a plan or a purpose. He acts purely on the impulses of the moment. And one of the impulses of the moment, again, is that he sees a woman and he falls. He falls hard for this woman. She's in the Valley of Sorek, in the borderlands, in this valley leading down to Philistine. And we can be pretty sure she's a Philistine herself because Samson never shows any interest in Israelite woman. Samson is in love. How can you argue with love? How can you question that? Samson see, Samson want, Samson take. It's a deadly infatuation. Eating honey from a rotting corpse. This is a man who's been bound by his passions long before he lies trussed up on Delilah's lap. And then a deadly game begins. The five Philistine lords come to Delilah. They've heard that Samson is visiting her and they offer a bribe, a shockingly enormous bribe, 5,500 shekels. There's a guy later in the book who feels pleased that he's earning 10 shekels a year. This woman is given 65 kilos of silver, 140 pounds, probably more than she weighed in silver. These guys are desperate. Samson may be in love, but this woman is also a harlot. She's just a much pricier one than the woman that Samson hired in Gaza. And the Philistine chieftain say to her, look, you need to find out this guy's secret. Wheedle it out of him some way. Neutralize him, tie him up, and let us come and collect him. And Samson, who has no problem using women, is going to find out what it feels like to be used by someone else. 
So he's visiting his girlfriend. I imagine her lying beside him in bed, stroking his biceps. And she asks her lover, honey, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. And Samson, he's an easygoing fellow. He's a bit of a prankster. He loves riddles. And he comes up with story after story that explain his power. Seven fresh bowstrings. Ah, you need to tie me up with new ropes. Uh, That loom over there across the room, if my hair was braided into that, then I would be rendered as weak as other men. And she tries again and again, and every time he tears himself free. It's a fun game for Samson. Finally, she says to him, how can you say that you love me when you won't confide in me? Don't you know that vulnerability is the heart of any successful relationship, Samson? This is built on trust. And how can we move forward if you're not willing to share your deepest secrets with me? I just want to know that you're willing to share your entire heart with me. And with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. And finally, the exhausted superhero spills the beans and tells her everything. Here's a man who's strong enough to tear the gates off of Gaza and carry them 40 miles uphill. He's too weak to resist an evil woman. And he just spills his entire heart to her. He says, my hair has never been cut. I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. And if my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as anyone else. And I'm sure you also emphasize, Delilah, no more fooling around, okay? This is not a joke like the other times. Don't mess with my hair. This is serious. And it's not that the hair is magical in some way. It's clear in the story that the power comes from God. It comes from God's spirit, but it's tied very closely to the sign of his calling. The only sign of Samson's calling that he actually takes seriously. He's broken everything else. And when Samson tells her, Delilah, with her womanly intuition, knows this time he's told me everything. And she calls up the Philistine rulers and says, bring the reward, bring the silver, hide in the next room. We got him. And then she puts Samson to sleep in her lap, stroking his hair like a little baby. And he falls into a deep sleep. And while he's sleeping, she calls over the Philistines, what I'm sure was a very nervous barber, and they quietly, surreptitiously snip off the seven braids of Samson's hair. And his strength leaves him. And Delilah begins to torment him. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And when Samson woke up, we're told, he thought to himself, I will do as before and shake myself free. But he didn't realize the Lord had left him. What an utterly frightening sentence. He didn't realize the Lord had left him. He was an insolent, cocky fellow. He didn't realize that God allows us to experience the consequences of our sin. You will reap what you sow. And again and again in scripture, and as we've all seen from our own experience, God will allow very gifted people who told themselves and who told others, I am indispensable in the kingdom of God. It can't possibly go on without me. And God allowed them to ruin their marriage, torpedo their ministry, destroy their family, and ruin all the fruit that could have come from their ministry because they coasted on their gifts instead of guarding their character. And now Samson, 
who had spent his life cheerfully taking God's power for granted, experiences for the very first time in his life what it means to be weak, what it means to experience resistance, what it feels like to be under someone else's power. And it couldn't have come in a worse way. He wakes up from his pleasant dream to discover the game is over. The Philistines capture him and they gouge out his eyes. The source of all Samson's trouble. What metaphorically he should have plucked out himself. These eyes are plucked out by his enemies. And they take him to Gaza where he's bound with bronze chains and forced to grind grain in the prison. Hercules is broken and humiliated. And the shame is the point. Because he has humiliated the Philistines and they need a public relations campaign to recover their national honor and prestige. And that can be accomplished far more effectively by exposing him as neutralized, imprisoned, and blinded than as someone who is merely killed. It's the horrifying downfall of a great hero. The tragedy of a wasted life. And the question is, does this ruined and maimed figure still have a part to play in God's plan? A person of so much promise who had frittered it all away. Is there anything still left for Samson? Can God still use him? And then the narrator brilliantly gives us this pregnant sentence. But before long, his hair began to grow back. Philistines, for all their precautions, had forgotten about his hair. And they call this massive celebration in Gaza, the very place that Samson had ripped the gates off. They call this massive worship celebration, a worship celebration of praise to Dagon, their God, the God of the harvest, the national protector of the Philistines. And he hasn't been mentioned in this story because from the narrator's perspective, he's done nothing. But from the Philistine perspective, he's the one who has delivered Samson into their hands. And they sing songs of praise to their God. Nothing could be more calculated to provoke the jealousy of the one true God. In their celebration, the crowds call, we want to see Samson. Bring this guy out and up from the dungeon. We want to see this pathetic figure that we were so frightened of that we could recognize in our streets, but we were powerless to do anything against. We want to see him before us. And we want him to perform for us. We want to see this broken person shuffle in dance as we laugh and jeer and mock him and celebrate the victory that our God has given us. Samson, the man who could do anything he wanted to, has to be led around by a boy. And he asks the boy, while the crowd is cheering and jeering and singing, he asks him after his dance, can you lead me, lead my hands and place them against the pillars, the massive pillars supporting this structure so that I can rest. And standing there with his hands against the pillars, Samson prays. Not really a figure in Judges who's remarkable as being a man of prayer. But now, in his deepest weakness, Samson prays. Sovereign Lord, he prays, remember me. Please strengthen me once more. The prayer of a broken man. And throughout Judges, it's remarkable how God answers prayer again and again. It's like God's compassion cannot resist when his people cry out to them, even though God has been burned by their lack of repentance and their hypocrisy time and time again, 
God always answers and always comes to the rescue. It seems like a moment of redemption for Samson. But it turns out his prayer is not about the glory of God. It's not about doing some good for others at last. It's a prayer of vengeance. God, let me avenge myself for the loss of my eyes. Samson is still Samson, just as narcissistic in his brokenness as he is in his strength. Nevertheless, God answers his prayer, and Samson stretches out his arms, and he pushes these massive load-bearing pillars, and the whole structure collapses on top of Samson, on top of the Philistine lords, on top of the thousands of people, turning the temple of Dagon into a cemetery. And in doing so, Samson killed more Philistines in his death than he ever had in his life. The whole story is so tragic, you know? This is the biography of a wasted life. Someone who was so gifted and so selfish. I think in Judges, Samson is really Israel in miniature. So gifted by God, so empowered by him, the bearer of so many miracles, called, set apart, dedicated as holy people to God's service for the blessing of others, and yet so impulsive, so selfish, so sinful. The book gets even darker at the end. There's two stories in the concluding chapters as the cycle of the 12 judges is complete. One is about this bizarre story of pagan idolatry right in the heart of Israel. And then there's a story that absolutely wasn't small print in my children's Bible about a slave girl who is gang raped so violently that she doesn't survive the night. And then her body is chopped up in 12 pieces and it starts this whole civil war. And this happens not in Philistia, not in a Canaanite city. It happens in a city of Benjamin. Israel is as bad as Sodom in the book of Genesis. And the people of God are now completely rotten, completely decayed. And just like Samson did not realize the Lord had left him until it was too late. There's a warning for Israel. God might abandon you after taking his presence and power for granted. God may in the end abandon you and you will find yourself overcome, bound, exiled, humiliated, and enslaved. Not a very cheerful book, is it? Not a very hopeful book. And the whole book is leaning forward saying this is a dark time. This is the darkest of times. And what we need is a strong and righteous king so that we will not all do what is right in our own eyes and bring destruction down on our own heads. In its immediate context, the book of Judges is looking forward to the house of David. But even that house, and even that great king, will find out are deeply flawed themselves. And the context of the whole scripture, Judges, is looking forward to King Jesus, a righteous judge, a leader who loves his people. You know, we read the Old Testament, and this series is called Christ in the Old Testament, looking for different types of Christ, different people who in their lives point to and reflect Jesus. And in some ways, there are some striking similarities between Jesus and Samson. Both are saviors sent by God, 
Their miraculous birth is announced by an angel to their mother. They're clothed with supernatural power. They go about doing strange feats and miracles. In the end, both are betrayed, bound, handed over, taunted, and humiliated. And both of them, in their final act, stretch out their hands to reveal the salvation of God most powerfully in their death. In some ways, Samson is like Jesus. But in many more ways, Samson is unlike Jesus. With all these figures in the Old Testament, we have to ask ourselves, how is Jesus so much better than this very flawed and sinful person? Again and again in his life, Samson shows that he's utterly selfish and narcissistic. He deploys his gifting to gratify himself and his fleshly impulses. And therefore, in the end, Samson can't really rescue the people of God. We're told significantly at the beginning of his story that Samson began to judge Israel. But his work was only ever partial and incomplete. And then Christ comes. But instead of gratifying himself with his divine power far greater than Samson's, Jesus comes and he empties himself. And every single miracle Jesus does is for other people to save, to redeem, to heal, to bless. Never for himself. He's dedicated completely to God and to God's beloved people. And it's striking in the Gospels how often we're told that Jesus looks at people. Samson looks at people too, to use them, to possess them, to discard them. Jesus looks and he has compassion. And Jesus dies willingly and voluntarily. He allows himself to be bound and handed over and he dies at the hands of the enemies of God's people, not with a prayer for vengeance on his lips, but the cry, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they are doing. And in Jesus' death, he brings down the whole temple of the false god, and he conquers decisively sin and Satan and death, proving himself to be the true king who rescues God's people. Samson only began, only barely began, to judge and rescue God's people, but Jesus says, it is finished. We might ask ourselves, as we will often ask ourselves in the Bible, why did God use Samson? Why does God use such flawed, broken, and frankly, deeply sinful people? It's a strange thing about Israel's national history. Every other national history is patriotic, and we paint our history in glowing colors, And the Old Testament is this brutal book of really messed up people, hardly heroes at all. God uses flawed people because they're the only people available for God to use outside of Jesus. And God draws straight lines with crooked sticks, very crooked sticks. And there's a long line in the Old Testament, flawed, sinful and profoundly compromised people that God uses, that he identifies with, that he claims for himself, just like Samson's body is claimed by the Israelites at the end of the story. You know, Samson is only mentioned once in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11, of all places, what we think of the hall of fame of faith, and Samson is listed in that chapter as someone who had faith. He may not have had very much faith, But there was faith 
there, and God honors it. That is really good news. Because brothers and sisters, we are also sinful, flawed, profoundly compromised people. We're all crooked sticks. And we wonder, how can God possibly use me in his purposes? When I've wasted so much grace, when I have frittered so much away. And we look around us at other Christians and leaders and people who are far more gifted and called by God than we ourselves are. And we're disappointed so often. Jesus is the only king. We don't dare to put hope in other people. We don't even dare to hope in ourselves. And if you're disappointed in yourself, well, you and I have been foolish ever to trust ourselves. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the great deliverer. And in his sovereignty, reigning over God's people, he is drawing many straight lines with these crooked sticks to bring about the good, saving will of God for his undeserving people. So shall we pray and ask for God's mysterious, gracious blessing on us flawed people? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent a savior to us in our downward spiral of sin, idolatry. You have had compassion on us when we weren't even crying out to you. And you have come to fight our enemies and decisively conquer them, to overthrow sin, to conquer death, to destroy the evil one. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, our great deliverer. We thank you for his sacrificial death. We thank you for his noble, kingly, selfless, generous character, his grace and his love for us. And afresh, we place our hope in him. In his mighty name we pray, O Lord. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.